Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? Yeah. 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 JJ, I was doing a weird thing today. You need to stop doing that. (laughs) I know. I actually do need to stop doing that. And now I'll tell you what it is. Okay. I feel like for 30 or 40 minutes today, I just gave a shit about the podcast. (laughs) Wait, which one? Oh, this one. Oh, okay. And I was thinking, what could we do to make our podcast better? Wait, which one? This one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. And I had an idea. Okay. During this during this mental exercise in which I was in the shower, I had a potentially brilliant idea. Okay. I think that you and I should start a book club. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, since you and I are already reading so many chess books, I know that you're reading a ton of chess books with and for your students, and I have been so committed to reading at least a couple books. Um, Every day. <laughs> one book a day for my 2023 calendar that went viral on Twitter. I feel like we could be picking out the best books that we come across and helping our listeners really curate their own reading. I mean, there's so much trash out there. Yeah. Let's tell yeah. people where the gold is. I think that's a great idea. I think it's great for two reasons. First, there's definitely not any other podcast that does this. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> It's important to be unique, so that's great. We ought to we ought to fill the holes. We have to. Yes, we have to fill the holes. I'm vibing. Second, I get questions from students, including some who've been playing for a while and who are pretty strong intermediate players, that I realize are such good questions that I never think to anticipate, which are essentially boiled down to, how should I read a chess book? Yeah. And that's like such a reasonable question because, you know, if you're not capable of visualizing whole games in your head and variations, et cetera, then you can't really just pick it up and just lay on the couch with it and read it and digest it that way. And if you are setting up the boards and whatnot, then it starts taking a long time. And even if you are, for some of these books, there's this question of what even should I be looking for? It's almost, and for some of these books, it might be like, you know, just trying to read a textbook and you can't really digest a textbook the way that you can digest a novel or historical nonfiction. (laughs) Of course. So I think that something that can be really useful too is to talk about some books that we really like while kind of putting forward not just why we like them in terms of why the content is good, but why we like them in terms of what makes them readable or what makes them click for us. Yeah. And also how to engage with that material. I really hear you saying that. And I don't think that that is an obvious question to answer. And like you said, I imagine people have a lot of questions. They might not even know that that's a question that they have. It's one of those questions that when people ask it to them, it's the most obvious thing in the world to ask. But when I hear it, I'm like, you realize you needed to ask that. You're a genius. That's brilliant. (laughs) 
Yeah, totally. And for other people, they might just feel themselves struggling to engage with those types of materials effectively. Mm -hmm. So I love that, JJ. I think that we are potentially the two most brilliant podcasters in the business right now. Absolutely. Let's review some books. I'm okay. sure I can just imagine Ben Johnson listening to this, thinking to himself, why didn't I think of that? Scooped. <laughs> okay. So what if we started with a book that's already been on the Perpetual Chess book review? Wait, Perpetual Chess has a book review? <laughs> yeah, we're doing it right now. Why don't we start with a book that we both know and love and think is underrated, whether or not it's already been featured on Perpetual Ben? What's its rating? <laughs> what is its rating? I think that this is some top tier shit. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about the book Under the Surface by Grandmaster Jan Marcos. Ever heard of him? Maybe not, actually. Marcos is cool. So he is a Slovak chess grandmaster and he's played a lot in the Czech Republic. And his other book, The Secret Ingredient, is co authored with Czech GM David Navara. He has a background, he has a degree in philosophy and does sorts of like epic stuff and is a very quippy, pithy writer. Yeah. Okay. I did not know he had a degree in philosophy, mm -hmm. but that makes so many things click, JJ, because I feel like when you read his work, it is so philosophical. As soon as you said that, a million light bulbs went off and I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now I understand so much better why his books read the way they read. Because I feel like so much of Under the Surface really is almost a metacognition, like how to think about the way you're thinking about chess, mm -hmm. how to think about it, not the what to think about it, which you'll get in so many chess books. This to me feels very distinctly different than anything else I've encountered in the chess book world. Yeah. And I will say we're not talking about it today because one of us hasn't read it, but The Secret Ingredient also really falls into that category in some sense, even more so because rather than try and give sorts of philosophical concepts and explanations of chess strategy and play, it's really much more into the question of how do I approach this game? And they almost describe it as their attempt to write a boring chess book of how would you explain the games that grandmasters play and aspiring strong players play that aren't going to make it into the greatest games collection. The ones that don't have such a brilliant finish that you can go back and convince yourself that you saw the plan all along and write about how you anticipated everything and put it in your My Greatest Games Ever Played collection. But the one where you were trying pretty fucking hard and then at the end of the day, nothing happened and it was a draw. What's going on there? Right. And I love that so much. Isn't there something about that that feels so much more distinctly useful? Yes. Than reading a lot of books with these brilliant moves and tactics, which no offense, but you are never going to fucking find that. Maybe, 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 mm -hmm. but. Um, or maybe, maybe even more specifically, it's if you dedicate your chess study to finding those things and you dedicate how you play to finding those things, you are going to get yourself in so much time trouble and in so many bad positions and miss so many perfectly playable, decent positions by forcing yourself to look for the brilliancy when you don't need to because you don't have the vocabulary of what else you could be looking for besides the brilliancy. Totally, totally. So let's let's reorient and circle back, JJ, to mm -hmm. the book that we have both read oh, yeah. that we wanted to kick off our book club with. If you were going to describe or even try to sell under the surface to one of your students or to somebody in the chess world, how would you think about doing that? 
Yeah, quite simply, say this is a strategy book that tries to actually convince you of and make deeper sense of sorts of rules or maxims, etc., that you might have heard, rather than just bombard you with examples that are supposed to leave you with the feeling that this has to be right, even if you don't understand why. Right. So this is a book that's more that pays more attention to mechanisms, not just the axioms themselves. I was thinking more, it, it tries to get into your head and it's trying to almost have a conversation with you and convince you through prose, not just example, and to make you feel the truth of some of these things rather than just convince you via example and appeals to authority of, well, here's Karpov following this principle, so you can too. Right. That was kind of what I was trying to get at, JJ, by mechanism. What I meant was not just the what, like here mm -hmm. is the principle that I'm telling you is correct. And here's the examples that should prove it to you. But actually spending the time to explain here is why or how this actually manifests. Yeah, like I want to read this one quote from it on the topic of double ponds. Mm -hmm. So double ponds is something where... Yeah, perfect example. I think I think if I remember right, our friend of the pod, Nate Solon, was complaining about double pawns. And how did everyone get this idea that double pawns are always bad? Where did that come from? I'm not sure if that was Nate. Doesn't matter. They're all the same. <laughs> no, that was Nate. That, that was Nate. Nate. Here's here's the explanation in one paragraph of why double pawns are generally bad and why they sometimes aren't. And he starts by referring to Nimzovich, says, as Nimzovich mentioned, a structure including doubled pawns is much restricted in its movement. It is a defensive structure. Any movement forward would create chronic pawn weaknesses. Doubled pawns are truly similar to a bone fracture. When you move them, they start to hurt a lot. Doubled <laughs> pawns therefore restrict their owner's movement, as does an arm in a splint. All this is true only about doubled pawns that cannot easily be exchanged. Doubled pawns that arise but then cease to exist a few moves later can't be considered as a chronic weakness. I love the analogies in this book. If there mm -hmm. is anything I could point to that makes this book feel not only unique and distinct, but just so useful, like worth every penny, is that he creates these really beautiful images. I mean, honestly, kind of these poetic analogies and comparisons for these different sort of phenomenons on the chessboard. And there's something about it, like you said, JJ, that makes it really sink in. I just love it. Yeah, like, I get the sense that he doesn't want you to just believe him and he doesn't want to give you all of these examples in order to just come to the same conclusion he has. He wants you to feel what he feels about, for instance, a weak bond structure. And that that really goes far. Like, I don't want, you know, I don't want my student to be looking at a possible variation where they have doubled pawns and say, well, I think doubled pawns are supposed to be bad and sometimes they're not. And let me try and calculate or evaluate whether they're bad or not here. I want them to look at that and be like, yeah, I feel my movement restricted. Right. Absolutely. I feel like disjointed looking at that. Or on the flip side, oh, that doesn't seem to cramp anything. Or I want them to be evaluating that position, find the way to push the pawn forward and trade it off. And I want them to feel relief. Right. Definitely. And you can sort of compare that to the types of weaknesses that might be pointed out to you or come to your attention in a book like Reassess Your Chess, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all the things you might want to look for. But then I feel like what Marcos does is exactly what you've just described, like almost make you feel the pain of that mm -hmm. and maybe just illuminates it in a more obvious way. Yeah. yeah. And well, I mean, and everyone has different learning styles and different things will click. 
But but I think that a lot of improving players, when they're starting to learn strategic concepts, what they learn is, okay, these are things that are supposed to be bad. And so if I can avoid these things, or if I can stick my opponent with these things, that should be a problem. And gives me an easy, concrete plan to play for. So I think at the beginning, if you're mm-hmm. if you're really just going off of something like reassess your chess, mm-hmm. that actually could be really useful if before that you're not doing anything at all. Mm-hmm. But of course, it is very reductive. And it's not just that it's reductive. I guess it tells you what to play for, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what you should do once you achieve it. So if all I know about doubled pawns is that they're generally bad, and then I calculate a line that sticks my opponents with doubled pawns, and then I proceed to do things that don't at all try and exploit their restricted movement. Yes, yes, yes. Or I exactly. do things that yeah. don't at all make sure they can never chuck off those doubled pawns and get rid of their weaknesses. And then I scratch my head and say, well, I thought creating double pawns would be a problem. And I thought that that meant that they had a long-term weakness and I didn't, so I should be better. And then I wasn't, and I don't know why. And the thought is, okay, well, what if you can create the doubled pawns and then say, oh, cool, now I understand that there's a sort of fluidity to my structure that they lack. There's a sort of rigidity to their pieces. There's that breaks favor them, not me, if they can get rid of those pawns. And it's not just that. So the the problem is not so much that you've marked something off on a checklist, so you're closer to getting positional chess bingo. It's that, cool, the plan now comes out of, given that they have this weakness, anything that reinforces their weakness and makes them feel the effect of this weakness is just a good move. And they have the much more narrow path of anything that gets rid of this weakness is a good move. And I'm kind of in the driver's seat because I can keep turning the screws on the weakness they have and just taking away the one or two concrete resources to get rid of it. But that's very different than, well, this was supposed to be bad, so I gave it to them and now I've ceased to think about it. Right, exactly. If I don't know what actually puts the strain on that bone fracture that can just sit in a caster heel mm-hmm. and it's not a static advantage for me anymore. So if I don't really understand what I'm trying to exploit, if I just know that it's bad, that actually doesn't help me achieve any of these longer term advantages on the board. And I think what I meant by like really what we were both talking about with loving the analogy is, is like there's something just so visceral about his writing style and that he wants to help you understand how to exploit these weaknesses, these imbalances by helping you understand what they can feel like for you or your opponent. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The way he does that, there is something so salient or sticky about it. I think that really illuminates that better than writing that essentially just says doubled pawns are typically bad. It reminds me a little bit of like somebody with a synesthesia. Is that the one where you where numbers have colors? That's one example of synesthesia. Okay. Yeah. So And I know that the thought there is it's usually can't really ever make somebody understand what it's like to see the color of the number three. But there's something almost of you get the sense writing, reading this book, that this is somebody who deeply feels and senses all of these features of chess positions. And it's not just ones and zeros. It's not just evaluations. And it's certainly not just very calculations. It really is a very sensory vivid almost overwhelming experience. And he's really inviting us to tap into a way to start to feel that and play in a way that is responsive to how positions genuinely feel. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I know. I love how he does that. And we're on the topic of ponds, even the way he sort of describes the pond as that protective barrier or like the skin. The way he just says very clearly something that I think other writers are trying to imply, but don't just say objectively how you're trying to protect what's behind them, right? So when you're creating the doubled pawns, essentially you're potentially creating holes in that structure and you're you're diminishing what your pawn structure is trying to achieve. So I just feel like that image, I don't know, it stuck with me in a way that someone else just saying like, hey, don't have holes in your pawn structure doesn't do necessarily. No. Or like, or like saying like, well, like an ad on the rim is dim. Right. Which again, you might remember that rule. So you might force mm-hmm. an exchange that puts your opponent's knight on a rim. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to exploit that, so what? So what? Then they reroute. Now they've got a powerhouse. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, with some of the concepts in the book that are so unique, I think maybe my favorite is where he paraphrases from Animal Farm. And talks about how a lot of chess positions are equal, but some equal positions are more equal than others. Yes. I love the way he talks about equal positions. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Because conventional conventional wisdom might say that if you're looking to play for a win, if you're looking for openings that give you winning chances, if you're even just picking what openings to play, and you want to look off of you know what are the evaluations or what are the win percentages or something. He says, when playing for a win, there is no reason to avoid equal positions. What is important is to avoid, quote unquote, more equal positions. You want to look (laughs) for some inherent imbalance in the position, such as the bishop pair in return for having doubled pawns or being more developed in exchange for being down material or the advantage being on the king side versus on the queen side. The sort of thing that gives you decent enough chances to outplay your opponent, regardless of the objective evaluation. And this is, in a sense, what reassess your chess is all about, this concept of imbalances. Yeah. But the way in which kind of updating it or trying trying to say that this is what you should be looking for is something that I wanted to talk about because a lot of my students around you know, the 1200 level who are really starting to appreciate how important planning and strategizing and coming up with a plan can be for their chess, or they start getting into more closed positions and their opponents stop wondering tactics and they need to figure out how to win games more strategically. They want to know, how am I supposed to find the right plan? Or how was I supposed to know that this is a good plan or the best plan? And there's something you said before is like, no, like the whole point of the position, the whole point why maybe you're told play on the queen side in the closed Sicilian, it's not so much that there's some proof about why it's best, it's well. Did you notice how your opponent's pawns are expanding over there on the king side? Did you notice how the center is locked? Wouldn't it be nice if you also had expanding pawns? Now you each have something and they're on different parts of the board. Their stuff is close to your king. Your stuff isn't. So what does that tell you? They're playing for mate and you're playing for more long-term kind of endgame advantages. There you go. Now you have a strategy about how to play the game. Now it tells you what exchanges favor you or not. Now it tells you all sorts of other things. Totally. All because you were able to navigate to a position, regardless of the stockfish evaluation, regardless of the draw percentage in the master's database, where they're fighting for one sort of thing, you're fighting for something else. You think, what would help me in that fight? What would help them? And now you're able to make strategic decisions based off of that. Right. Which is funny, JJ, that you're thinking about all that kind of coming out of his conversation about equal positions, because I feel like that's also exactly how he describes how to think about openings and play openings and Mm. even study openings. It's really not just about these opening lines and memorizing moves like we always talk about. 
but really how do you steer the position into positions that you like that give you the advantage? And I hear you saying that with the mm-hmm. example of the closed Sicilian. How do I start to steer this in a direction where I can capitalize on the one advantage that I know that I have if my opponent is locking the center and playing kingside and mm-hmm. I have potential to expand and attack queenside? And he also talks, and I really like this, about how in addition to objective features of the position, there will be subjective features about whether the position is equal or not. For instance, if you're the kind of player who has decent defensive skills and is good in the endgame, then the fact that it's an objectively equal position, but but the strengths of the position match your strengths, then that could be a huge advantage. Or vice versa, or there might be an opening that is an incredibly powerful opening and maybe even scores well for your color, but it requires good defensive play, which is not your strength. And then when you play it, you keep getting mated. And you're like, <laughs> but I keep getting mated. And even though it's a good winning line, it's the main recommendation in the course or something. Yeah. How doesn't this work? It's like, well, subjectively, it requires a sort of familiarity or comfort that, you know, you can grow as a player by developing that, but you might not be playing to your strengths. And for professional players, part of what makes them, Marco says this, part of what makes them world-class players is that they can play more or less any position really well, even if it's not their strength or even if it's not where they're the most comfortable. But the lower you go down the rating ladder, the more those sorts of things will really matter. Like I know a lot of E4 gambits are taught to beginner intermediate players because for most of us we're learning chess by practicing a lot of tactics and so it's just much easier to attack than defend or to mate our opponent than play an endgame so subjectively speaking a slightly worse position like most lines of the evans gambit with the initiative are way more dangerous in the hands of a 1200 (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) of course yeah that makes so much sense to me and it even kind of reminds me of the conversation that we had with John Bartholomew mm-hmm. when we're thinking about subjective equalities. Even if Stockfish gives an eval of 0.0, if your opponent's path mm-hmm. to keep that position equal is very narrow, mm-hmm. if they have one or a couple moves, whereas you have a lot of ways that you can respond, that to me is also the perfect example of an equal position that is not equally equal. And I even love the way that Marcus explains this whole concept in just it's another way to put into right. words what John said in his example here, again, with the fucking analogy is at the poker table, the following applies. The more pieces of information I have about cards that the other players hold, the more successful I will be. A player who, by some fraudulent method, knows what cards their rival possesses will surely end the evening with a massive profit. So one of the most important principles of positional chess is do not reveal your position and how your plan will look in a few moves time. If your opponent does not have to think about alternative scenarios, they will be able to focus all their energy on countering your clear plan and structure and will be much more effectively prepared. You should therefore look for universal moves. That is a move that does not tie you too early to this or that plan. And then he goes on to define some of the most common kinds of committal moves. I love that so much. I think that that is exactly another way of what we talked about on that episode in terms of playing patiently Mm -hmm. and not making those committal moves. But I did not think about it in the way that Marcos describes it, which is such a good point. It's not only about maintaining your flexibility, but not showing your hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what we were saying, right? Because when you play the more committal moves, you're giving your opponent a very clear path per se. Like they know more how to respond when they can see what you're playing for and can try to thwart it. But that's such a cool way of putting it. If I can also keep that close to the vest... 
I know <laughs> what my options are, and I also know which one of those options I would like to play in a way that my opponent doesn't. I'm taking away the clarity of what my plans are so that my opponent can't play against them. I just think that's so cool. If you keep your your cards close to the vest, then your opponent has to invest more time. Oh, no. Team hyphen. <laughs> um, I fell right into that one. One of the clearest examples of that is I've had a lot of conversations with opponents and students where they have maybe a big pawn center and they have the opportunity to make multiple kinds of pawn pushes. Maybe they have like a beautiful d4, e4, f4 as white. And all of d5, e5, and f5 seem to have some merit as expansions. And then they'll say something like, I didn't know which one I should push. And the response is, okay, well, what if you find a good move that could support multiple of those pushes in the future? Now, instead of you spending your time and energy choosing which one to push, and then I get to sit there and think, now that I know which one they push, I only have to respond to that break. Instead, every move they make, I'm like, well, shit, they haven't told me if they're playing that to prepare D5, E5, or F5. So now before I make my next move, I need to make sure I'm still prepared for D5, E5, and F5. And then they make another move that can support all three. I'm like, well, fuck. And just eventually, I'll probably play a move that makes one of their pawn breaks stronger. And then they play their break once they have information about my structure instead of giving me the information. And it's just this idea of this is your advantage is your positional advantage is the flexibility of I need to be prepared for three different structures that could result. And if you just turn that into let me pick the best structure, even if I'm worse in that structure, even if you're correct that this favors you, I breathe a sigh of relief of cool. Now I know what we're playing. I'm just playing with shitty pieces. I've done that before. I could do that anytime. Yes. And I I don't think I've ever read, and you can think of examples, JJ, just because your mental library is so much bigger than mine. Any other books that think about that idea of clarity as an advantage? Mm -hmm. The other big one is also a recent book, which is How to Play Equal Positions by Catronius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's one where like Magnus is one of his model players. And he's also like after the similar question to Marcos and Navarra of what are players thinking about in positions where they don't have a clear imbalance to play for? They don't have a clear objective advantage to try and convert. And the answer is, okay, well, if I understand that the position is roughly equal because I have this advantage and your thing over there outweighs it, what can I do that makes it really hard for you to keep your thing? Yeah, yeah. And I even even that. if I believe that you can do it, and even if I believe there must be an answer, let's just see. Because if it turns out you don't think that your advantage is that special, and you don't go out of your way to keep it when I force you, then now I have an advantage, or now we have more of an imbalance. Yeah. And that, to me, was the other advantage that really came out of your lesson and our conversation with John mm-hmm. that is woven so much into Under the Surface, which is the idea of forcing your opponent to make the difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. And that comes out of the flexibility or the lack of clarity. But that idea of let your opponent make the decisions. And to me, it really relates to the axiom that we all kind of know, which is... When in doubt, push upon. <laughs> Yeah, that's what my chess coach taught me for sure. (laughs) I put that on other Yelp reviews, but it's about the second to last mistake, right? And I really heard you and John discussing that idea of give your opponents, especially your lower rated opponents, as many chances to make decisions because you're just increasing the likelihood that they fuck up 
I mean, it's an interesting mm-hmm. way to think about and to play chess. But frankly, before we started having those conversations was certainly not at all the way I was thinking about the decisions that I was making. And uh, you're, you're going to know exactly why I want to talk about this. But one thing and I can put the example from one of my recent games in the show notes is one way in which I don't always think of that principle applying is in positions where you've actually achieved the advantage, you are much better, and the attack has been crushing. Yes. I know exactly what example mm-hmm. you're going to talk about, which is how I know it's a good example. Oh, yeah. I'm glad something good has come out of it. A lot of good has come out of it, just not the other half of the point. So I'll just read his whole example. This is from the concept of the break. And he gives a whole example of Walter Michel's experiments with the kids and the marshmallows. And you put the key marshmallow in front of the kids and say, if you don't eat it, you'll get the marshmallows later. And some of the kids would eat the marshmallow anyways, they couldn't wait, and some of the ones would wait, and then they would eat the marshmallows. And then he claims that having followed them for their whole personal and professional lives, the ones who exhibited that ability to wait to get more marshmallows later had better lives. And I'm sure you're like chomping at the bits to talk about how there's all these racist and classist assumptions that were woven into that study. How did you know? Oh my because... God, I don't like it when you do that, JJ. That is exactly what I was waiting to say because they, when they control for SES, that mm-hmm. effect goes away because it actually is advantageous or adaptive to not delay gratification if resources are scarce. But anyway. Exactly. And that's why I thought I thought that that would actually be maybe relevant here too. So the, but the example he gives in chess is that very strong players have mastered a similar virtue. They are able to develop an attack, let it crash into their opponent's position with its full force, and then slow it down again. They are able to wait with the decisive blow, relying on the dominant position of their pieces. Psychologically, this is a very difficult thing to do, as we usually think that an attack should end with an explosion and bring the immediate victory. However, carrying out an attack often resembles driving a car on a curvy road. Accelerate, brake, accelerate, brake. An ambitious player needs to know how to use the brake in their games. And there's something where this combination of, in some sense, understanding that I could pull the brake in this position I was in, while in other senses really feeling like I needed to end with that explosion, led to breaking when I could have exploded and then exploding when I needed to break. And I think that was just like a nice example to think of, okay, yeah, this right. whole idea of patience or letting them make the mistake, it's even harder to do that when you also have so many tempting concrete sacrifices that look like they could be winning. Right. Right. And I was thinking too that what you were saying of how sometimes it is adaptive to not delay gratification. I was thinking of a couple points in this game. There are two really. One was where I saw the sack that looked winning, but she had two king moves. And rather than navigate both of them, I saw a nice little slower in between move that cut her king's movement in half. Now she only had one king move, and now the mate was clearer. So I play it. She plays the move. I'm about to sack. Then I pause to double check and make sure I have the mate. I realize I don't have the mate. I go calculate one forcing line to see how can I bring the mate back. I can't find it. It doesn't occur to me that the position after that is still good because the mate wasn't there. Then I try and play a slowdown move. The slowdown move I play doesn't actually improve any of my pieces. It's just trying to solve one of the problems that would happen if I played the sack. 
And then the very next turn, I talk myself back into playing the sack. It was worse than it was a move ago, and it was much worse than it was two moves ago. And now I'm losing and was really fortunate that she was low enough on time to accept the draw. I think there's probably going to be cases where if you do decide to pull the break, I don't know, like my opponent was under three minutes with 15 moves to reach the time control. If I break and I don't go for the material, I don't go for the attack, then she shuffles pieces around, hits time control. And then maybe now that we both have 30 minutes extra, it's not as crushing of a position anymore. Maybe one of the advantages was off it, right? Maybe, right? Maybe. But you and I have looked back at this game, and I actually think that this is such a beautiful example because you sort of identified that where you lost your advantage and you did have an advantage, Mm -hmm. and I know that this is more clear in hindsight, but it ended up not being because you hit the break when you shouldn't have. It was because Mm -hmm. I quote unquote got greedy. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I was looking for more. I was was Mm -hmm. looking for the material. I was actually looking for the mate sequence. And I think that this is such a beautiful example for this analogy because you can literally think about it in the context of the marshmallow experiment. When does that become an advantage to not delay the gratification? Who does not delaying gratification serve? We're saying it's the person who is in a context of scarcity, who is Mm. impoverished. So when you think about you and your opponent, whose back was against the wall and Mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of resources, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it truly was your opponent. And that was why shuffling pieces, that was why not trying to play patient and actually throwing a lot of things onto the board and trying to create the chaos potentially served. And so by you playing into the chaos, by you saying, great, let's go, all gas, no breaks, baby, (laughs) she was able to actually change Mm -hmm. the advantages. Whereas holding on to your advantage, maybe slowly putting on the pressure and suffocating your opponent to death might have served you who already had the resources, right? Like delaying the gratification, delaying the mate. Because you can even talk about the exact example where you Mm -hmm. feel like the eval really swung. Mm -hmm. And to me, it came from somebody who already had the advantage, but was like, great, I want to end it right now. That to Mm -hmm. me is the opposite of delayed gratification. That's not Mm -hmm. the patience. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I'm going to put that example in the show notes and I might try and defend myself a little bit there, but it's both. I mean, I found multiple ways to fuck that up. I, I think I think it was also an indecisiveness of I tried I tried to break without committing to the break. And then I also tried to explode without okay. committing to the explosion. But I was thinking, too, that there's also if you want to think of when are some cases where the side with the attack is also the impoverished side, the side with the back against the wall. That's actually a really easy question to answer. Sometimes you sacrificed a bunch of shit. Sure. Sometimes your position is really bad in the end game, even if you're not down material, then those are the kinds of cases where you might need to end with the explosion where there's no time for the break. And just realizing how a lot of attacks probably aren't going to be like that. A lot of attacks from a dominant position, you haven't sacrificed anything. You haven't sacrificed anything positional to create these weaknesses and to realize, oh, wow, for some reason, We've been playing, or at least speaking for myself, I have been playing every attack like it's one of those all-in attacks where if I don't get the mate, if I don't get the explosion, I'm fucked. But to be able to pause and say, wait, my back isn't against the wall here. I invested nothing into the attack. That's when I need to be looking for the break. Right. And I feel like the one of the pieces there too, JJ, was that had you just played slowly mm-hmm. and patiently, mm-hmm. you had an advantage that you could have maintained. Or even if you had hit the gas and it had like actually gone with yes. some of the plans and initiatives that you had, there were also winning chances there. So maybe exactly. it was even almost like the 
the non-commitment to either one of these ideas. Like exactly. If you hit the gas, go gas. Got to commit one way. And having this idea of the best move I had if I wanted to break was a move with one of the pieces that was making the mating net. So it would have meant giving up the mating net. And in my head, I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up all possibilities of the mating net. So then I've limited my moves, my quote unquote break moves to just moves with pieces that aren't great. Whereas if I was actually saying, wait, I'm breaking, I'm willing to break, this position is dominating, then I can actually free myself from the need to keep the mating net. And I would have found like a pretty devastating move that puts her in zigzag, and I've invested no material and I'm winning a piece more or less by force. Right. So then I guess, JJ, what becomes, if we zoom out, then uh-huh. how do we start to think about it? Because actually, this is exactly what is in under the surface, right? I mm-hmm. feel like that is the skill that he's trying to hit on. How do we know when to hit the accelerator and when to hit the brakes? Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel to me like there's a clear rule. Like we know it's not just be patient 100% of the time, brakes, brakes, brakes. We also know it's definitely not all gas, no brakes. So what are some of the rules of thumb that we're trying to use when we're considering whether to be sitting on our heels and playing patient versus whether it's balls to the wall, yeah, 100 miles an hour, or whatever we decide is useful in between? So one of the answers will just be, you know, what have you invested? What's the risk? What's the downside? How impoverished are you? Right. And I think that that's such a nice guiding principle because I remember yeah. in this particular game, I went in the other direction of envisioning some of the positions that would come out of pumping the brakes and worryingly asking myself, is that enough? The alternatives involve potentially a mate, involve grabbing some pawns and maybe not giving them back. And this just involves a pleasant position. And my first thought was, oh no, what if it's not enough? And to instead go from the order of what's the downside, what's the risk and say, well, there is none. Then instead of trying to make sense of this arbitrary enough, where it's never going to feel like enough if the alternative looks like a mate or looks like material, it's instead just saying this is a perfect time to pump the brakes because the fact that I'm asking, is it enough or not, suggests it's something. And if it's (laughs) something for nothing, then that's great. (laughs) It's interesting too to think about because it's almost like once your heart (laughs) sees the potential for something like real material or a mate sequence to be truly winning, I imagine it might be so much harder to play for the quote unquote something. Yes. That in comparison becomes almost loss. So Mm -hmm. you can see the way that you might be tempted to play for the enough is almost like the loss aversion rather than Mm -hmm. playing the board in front of you. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think I'm just going to go back to my old strategy of just never having such a good position. (laughs) So there's nothing to play for. You have to just wiggle, which you're the master of, the master of the swindle. Have that like really mild, slight imbalance advantage to needle them, but never have to work so hard because you're tempted by, is this enough or not? (laughs) Yeah, well... It's served you so far. And so I just think that the ways that all of these discussions in the book fit together is just really brilliant and thinking about reorienting how you approach strategic chess. Um, Yeah, I totally agree. And even just the writing style, I really feel like there is nothing else out there like this. I would recommend it to anybody and everybody. If you can read. (laughs) Before we wrap up, JJ, I do also want to chat about one of the original questions we posed, Mm -hmm. which is not just why do we recommend this? What's it about? What can you get out of it? But how to engage with a book like this, how to read it. How would you maybe start to describe that for people? 
Yeah. So I think something that is appealing about this book is it is relatively heavy on prose and light on examples, which means that it's as far as chess books go, it's skimmable. You don't really need to be setting up the board and playing along closely to understand the general points and just see what they're trying to say. So I think that this is more than most books, something that I could recommend trying to get through in a relatively small amount of sittings. But then from there, what I think is really useful, because you're never going to understand anything perfectly from reading it once or reading it 10 times. <laughs> but from there, <laughs> I think what might be useful is to try and just keep some of the things in the back of your mind or maybe take some notes to use it almost as a reference material. And then the next time you play a game and you feel, wow, my pieces weren't coordinated or you're have a, someone look at one of your games like a coach or like you submit to a stream or something and they're like, oh yeah, your pieces weren't coordinated. And if you're scratching your head, like what was not coordinated about them? Oh, well, you know who talks about the coordination for an entire section of the book. Let's go back and try and see that yeah, section where Marcos goes piece by piece of the personalities and what they want or don't want. Then try to see, you know, does anything ring a bell or do any of those examples you kind of skimmed through, do any of those things click? It's like, oh, now I see it's like, oh, yeah, like my night I thought was on an OK square, but I see how the way that Marcos is criticizing this night for being in the way of the other pieces and not attacking anything is similar to this, even though the square itself is fine. So it's kind of see if you can go and yeah. make some make sense of that. Yeah. Can we actually take just a little moment? Because that was one of my favorite parts of this book, actually, that I think people might really like and benefit from is how he sort of <laughs> describes the personalities or the wants and needs of the pieces. Mm -hmm. I see so many people playing chess in a way that almost completely ignores that aspect in general. Like, where does this piece want to be? Where do knights want to go? The rim. Where is your dark square bishop trying to live? The light squares. <laughs> the grass is always greener. <laughs> I love the way Marcos talks about that. Yeah. And this idea of the personality of the pieces, like I know Saltis has a great book, Rethinking the Chess Pieces, that gets into a lot of this. And this idea of personality isn't entirely original, but there's just so many ways yeah. that he thinks and rethinks it that are so thoughtful. And like, even in the very first chapter, he's talking about the three faces of the chess pieces and how he's talking about, well, yes. that as how all pieces can be attackers, they can also be the object of attack, and they can also be pieces of wood that are just in the way of everyone else. Tripping over each other's dicks. like Exactly. Side piece of the pod, go Paul. <laughs> friend with benefit of the pod. <laughs> Just friend, go Paul Menon. Wink, wink. Cool. Well, I feel like I'm sold. This does make me want to go back and reread some different sections of the book. So I feel like that's a good sign that we were very convincing. I think so. I think sales of this book are going to go through the roof. <laughs> Convince me. And maybe he will write another book full of more wisdom and aphorisms. And put us in the acknowledgments because we helped pave the way for his finances to give him the freedom to do more writing. And we also helped motivate him to give the people what they want when he saw how much we enjoyed his existing library of work. We basically wrote this book. It's so crazy that we came from where we started and now we are Jan Marcos's muses. I just can't even believe that's what happened. I mean, it's amazing. You know, time just isn't real. But this book is real. People go buy it.
Yeah. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFuelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. (laughs) At ChessProblem. Good call. Thank you. You're right. That was important. 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 Okay, you say it, then I'll say it. Important. 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 Is that how is does that sound more normal? I think you like you totally swallowed the T. Important. 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 I think it's really important. I think it's really important. 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 How do I normally say it? Important. <laughs> so what? That's how it's supposed to be pronounced. Important. Important. I think it's really important that we include these clips in this episode at the end. Yeah.